so funny. Last service, uh, Sarah's over here. She's doing announcements. And you guys probably know John and Patty Jack. What, anybody? So John and Patty Jack, so they're sitting in the front row. And Patty's phone goes off. And John goes like this. <laughs> totally just throws her under the bus. Gentlemen, if your wife's phone goes off during service, take the hit. Be a man. Be like, oh, that's mine. You're welcome. Just, just swallow the pride. Take it. So funny. At home, we throw our wives under the bus, apparently. That's what. <laughs> Thus says the Lord. Holy cow, people. <laughs> Anyway, uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there's also Bibles in, uh, underneath most of the chairs in the room. And so, again, if you don't have one, you can take one. That's why they're there. Please uh, take one. Uh, on all the communion tables throughout the room, there are sermon notes. Inside those sermon notes are some stuff that's different than what I talk about. And on the back, there are some questions. And we put those questions there so you can ask your family or your friends or if you're in a gospel community here that you would go through those things and go a little bit deeper into the message. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with today's message. So stand with me, reading of God's Word, and we will get started here. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people to live what we say we believe. Uh, that we would trust you day by day by day, and all of our tomorrows we would understand are in your capable hands. And so we would simply live as your children, glorifying you in all that we do. Amen. Have a seat. To the Bible, open to Matthew chapter 634, which is what we just read. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount today, we are going to round out uh, chapter 6, and then next week we'll go back and finish the little bit in chapter 6 we haven't uh, covered yet. Uh, this is the second week, though, of me talking to you about faith and doubt, uh, but today is going to be a little bit different than we talked about last week, because at the end of Matthew 6, Jesus has this amazing line in Matthew 6, 34, and I want you to... Actually, can you just throw that up there again, so everybody has it? Read this with me, okay? Therefore... Now, the reason I didn't talk and let you guys do it, because I even read fast, apparently. And last service I did that, and everybody's like, I can't keep up, so I just like let you guys go. This is the idea that we only really can live one day at a time. Uh, last week in talking about this, we came to the end with this point that we reflected that whenever we obsess about our tomorrows, we fail to live our every single day that we live in day by day by day to the glory of God. And so we talked about being anxiousness and, and worry is an issue of faith. It's not a deal breaker. It's an issue of faith in who we were ultimately going to trust. Are we going to trust God who feeds the birds, who clothes the grass? Or are we going to trust ourselves and our own ability and our own future? Who are we trusting? And then being anxious and worry reveals our priority. Jesus says the priority for our life is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's why he reminds us that every day has trouble of its own. No one has a guarantee for tomorrow. All we can honestly do is trust and seek his kingdom in the here and now. And this is really important for us to talk about what we really believe. That's what we're going to talk about today. Because what you believe is going to determine everything else you do in your life. Everything. He's really excited about this, I can tell. <laughs> you know, it's going to determine how we live. Like, if you have one of these bumper stickers on your car and it says, God is my co-pilot. 
right? Well, first off, you're in the wrong seat, right? But if you actually believe that, that's going to determine why you live the way your life, the way that you do. It's why you might be worried about all your tomorrows because what you're doing is you're trying to make God of your part of your story rather than understanding it is all God's story and he's writing us into his story. And so God's not a bit player in your life. God is the one who writes the story of our lives. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, you see this borne out. Uh, Frodo and Sam, they're climbing up Mount Mordor. See, now I got something that actually connects, right? Climbing up Mount Mordor, and they get ready to throw that ring into the fire, and Frodo is like, you know, what do we have to hang on to? Because apparently, Frodo whines the entire movie, and so Sam says that there's good in the world, and it is worth fighting for. That's, that's his answer. That, that's how he views the world, and so that's what determines how he lives. There's an old baseball movie. It's called Bull Durham. Uh, it's written by a guy who grew up in churches, became very disillusioned with the church, and he wrote this book called Bull Durham. It was made into a movie, and at the beginning of the movie, there's this female voice reading some of the stuff he writes in the book, and this is what the female voice says. I believe in the church of baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones, too, and the only church that truly feeds the soul is baseball. That's going to determine how he lives his life. What do we really believe? If you wrote a creed, like the ancient church would write creeds about what they believe. And if you wrote a creed about your life, what would it look like? What would it say? The Apostles' Creed is a creed that was written in AD 150. It's not written by the Apostles. It's just called that. But it's on the screen behind me. And this is what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence shall he come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, that's the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, there are churches that teach their people that to memorize that creed. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good creed to probably memorize. But most people never stop to ask themselves, do I truly believe that? Do I believe this? Uh, there's a true story. A few years ago, this church decided to change all of its liturgy over to the computer and make everything a little bit easier. And so there was a death by a woman named Mary. And then next week, someone died by the lady, by the lady named Edna. So all they did in the computer, they just said, change all the Mar- Marys to Edna's. And they went through and did this funeral service. It made it much easier. But when they got to the Apostles' Creed, it said they believed in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Edna. Now, you laugh because I pointed out, but I wonder if we were there reciting it, would we even notice? Let me give you some statistics. Four out of five self-identified Christian adults in America, 81%, say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. That means 19% of people who call themselves Christians have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I think it's funny. Uh, Less than one in five self-identified Christians, 18%, claims to be totally committed to investing in their own spiritual development. I mean, right there, that means that there is 82% of Christians who say they're not committed to that. About the same proportion of self-identified Christians, 22%. Only 22% claims they are completely dependent upon God. The majority of self-identified Christians in the U.S. say they have confessed their sins to God and asked for His forgiveness. But very few, actually 12% in this study, were serious about abandoning their sin and handing total control of their life over to God. 
Only one in eight Christians admitted to recognizing and grasping the significance of their sins. And those, uh, those one out of eight that ever, all did that, they all said that had become so personally devastating to realize what their sin did and what it cost God that it actually made them crash emotionally. In fact, according to the study, only about 3% of all self-identified Christians in America say they've come to a place where they surrender control of their life to Jesus, submitted to His will for their life, and devoted themselves to loving and serving God and other people. Three. Now, at Element, we talk about God and gospel communities and Jesus all the time. Some people come here, some people like it, and they stay. We think that's great. You should stay. One day we will have an air conditioner. Yay, it'll be wonderful, right? But anybody who goes to any church, they go there because they actually like their church. If you walked in the door and we smacked every one of you with a hammer on the head, you'd be like, I need to go somewhere else. This isn't a good church to be, right? So most people enjoy their churches. But most self-identified Christians in this study show they do not take their community of faith seriously as a place where they should open up and be held to biblical principles. Only one of five Christians, 21%, believe that spiritual maturity requires a vital connection to a community of faith. 79% of Christians do not believe they need to be connected with other believers in order to live the life that God calls us to. One out of three Christians have, uh, only one out of three Christians have actually had someone in their life they have accountability with. Only one out of three have someone else that they verbally identified and told their sins to in the last year. And so that makes you ask, do we really believe what we say we believe? And this could be the reason why we're always so worried about all of our tomorrows. Imagine two people. They both affirm like the Sermon on the Mount that we're going through or the Apostles' Creed. You know, all that's in there. And one person is humble and they're loving and they're truthful and they're bold and full of life. And someone else, they affirm the exact same beliefs, but they're selfish and angry and judgmental and cold-hearted and proud. And they gossip about people. Here's the question. Do those two people actually share the same faith? Do they really believe the same things? And if they do, why then are they so different? Because really, if faith is so important, if it's such a big deal to God that we are saved by faith through grace, this not of ourselves, why does faith sometimes not make a bigger difference in people's lives? How can two people have the same faith and yet be so different? Why doesn't it make a bigger difference? Uh, now, a guy named Michael Novak, he's a Catholic philosopher, and he wrote a book called Human Dignity and Personal Liberty. And in this, he talks about three different types of convictions that people have. And I'm going to give you those. Number one, he says there are public convictions. Public convictions. These are convictions that we want other people to think that we believe, even though we really may not believe them. Uh, for example, you know, we all do this sometimes, like if you're married or you're dating somebody and a girl says to a guy, hey, do these pants make my butt look big? The proper response is, no, I didn't even know you had a butt until you mentioned it. <laughs> right? That's, we make those statements for PR purposes, regardless of whether we believe them or not. Right? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Now, public figures are notorious for this. They do this all the time. They state convictions they don't really believe to try to create an impression about, you know, who they are and that kind of stuff. Uh, like, uh, this is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. This is the momentous, uh, most momentous election of our lifetimes. Read my lips, no new taxes. Hope and change. Uh, no, I'm not spying on you. All that kind of stuff. Uh, Stephen Colbert says that he calls these things truthiness. I love that. It's truthiness. They may not be true, but they sound true and allow the speaker to impress people with their sincerity. And so this has been going on for a really long time. Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, after Jesus is born, King Herod says to the wise men, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That is 
truthiness. He didn't want to go and worship Jesus. He wanted to go and kill Jesus. I think we should give politicians a hard time for their truthiness, but we all have an inner politician. And he's always working overtime, crafting and communicating all of our public convictions so you and I can help get what we want. I would say that sometimes even being part of a church increases the temptation to pretend to believe something you really don't. You know that there are colleges and universities and churches that require, like if you want to be a member, to affirm certain things. Like uh, this one place has a thing in premillennialism. You have to believe in premillennialism. What that is, it's a doctrine that teaches that Jesus will return and his followers will be taken out of the earth and then he'll inaugurate this thousand-year reign. Now, that is a future event. It hasn't happened yet, so I don't know how you're dogmatic about something that hasn't happened yet. And this is, has been a minority position in the Christian church for 1,850 years. Only in the last 150 years has it become really big. But people's jobs or membership at a church were actually contingent on that information. And so one guy was asked about this, and he said, My belief in premillennialism hangs by a slender economic thread. (laughs) That is public convictions. Pastors are notorious for it because we preach like we have no doubts, we've got it all figured out, and yet we struggle with certain things too. Okay, public convictions. The second one is called private convictions. Now, private convictions are convictions we think we believe, But it turns out we may not really believe those things. It sounds odd, I know, but I'll try and explain that. Uh, Sometimes we believe something, but it turns out my true convictions run the other way. Open to Mark chapter 14. I'll show you an example of this. Uh, Private convictions seem to be very real to us at the time, but when our circumstances shift and things go the other way, they're revealed to be hollow. Now, the night before Jesus is betrayed, he predicts that Peter is going to deny him three times. Mark chapter 14, verse 29, it says... Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, all these knucklehead JV disciples you got, Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, when Peter said those words, was he sincere at the moment? Oh, totally, totally. But when it came down to crunch time, were those convictions true? Not at all. Not at all. As soon as it came down to his life being on the line, you know, being stuck, do you know Jesus? I don't know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Make sure you don't know Jesus. I got a gardener named Jesus, but I don't know about Jesus. I don't know. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> and that's how it ended up. Totally true. What those are, those are private. Was that wrong? Should I say that? Okay, whatever. Those- <laughs> Oops, sorry, happens all the time. Let's keep going. You know, sometimes we think we have certain convictions, but it turns out we don't. You know, they don't run as deep as we think they do. And when our circumstances change, we feel differently. Now, I like some old movies. I had friends named Brad and Sandy. They always got me watching old movies. And I watched this old movie called Elmer Gantry. Anybody ever seen Elmer Gantry or read the book? Either one? Okay, so two of you. So this, this is going to connect with two of you. The rest of you are going to be lost. Whatever. Okay. Elmer Gantry, it's a story about this early 20th century revival preacher. Uh, he preaches with great force and power about the love of God, the darkness of sin. But in between all this preaching, he is chasing women, he's scheming for money, he's guzzling whiskey. You know, he's, he's a total shyster. But this movement that he's doing is growing. These revivals he's doing is just growing. And so a reporter starts to follow him around for about a year. And he's, this reporter is puzzled by the way Elmer Gantry lives this double life. Like he, he preaches with such conviction... And yet, he's such a tool on the other end. And so he asks Elmer Gantry if he really believed what he preached. Elmer Gantry's response in the movie is this. When I'm preaching it, I do. Those are private convictions. 
Sometimes private convictions may involve some self-deception uh, where we want to believe we're committed to something, but maybe we aren't that committed to it at all and we really know it, but we just keep denying it. Uh, people with symptoms of a disease usually find out a way to overlook all the symptoms because they don't want to think they have a disease. I am totally neurotic and I think I have everything, so I'm like, oh, I got that. Oh, like I watch the TV. Do you have to sleep at night? Oh, yeah, I got that. I need this pill. What's going on? You know, I... <laughs> Like that, uh, I, I have done premarital counseling for couples, and I've like said, "Here's your red flag." Here's your, and they look, "Oh no, that's not a problem." Oh no, that's. I mean, just totally overlook it all the time. We're totally deny stuff. I, there are parents who exaggerate their children's ability. I mean, almost every parent thinks their kid is smarter than they are. It's like, "Oh, my kid's the smartest kid in the world. He can't even turn a doorknob. He doesn't know how to work a door. Really? Whatever." What does it mean to really believe something? Okay, and the third thing is called core convictions. Core convictions. These are revealed by what we actually do day by day by day. And these are really the only ones that matter. These are what we would call our real convictions. And every one of us have these core convictions about the way the world and life really is. Uh, like, if I touch a hot stove or fire, I believe I will get burned. Some of you believe coffee gets you up and going in the morning. Uh, the rest of us who don't drink coffee just think it gives you bad breath and makes you irritable. But whatever. Okay, there you go. You know, uh, what all of us, we all have a core conviction about gravity, right? We all get up and we all just believe in gravity. You don't have to live your life very hard to live in a way that's congruent with the belief in gravity. You don't have to say, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to demonstrate to everybody my commitment to my belief in gravity. None of us have to do that. None of us have to remind ourselves not to jump out of a 10-story building unless you want to commit suicide, and then you jump out of a 10-story building because you believe in gravity. You're living in congruence with your belief in gravity. Gravity is part of our core convictions about the way things really are, and therefore our actions are always congruent with our belief in it. Let me give you an example of our belief in gravity, okay? How about this? Oh, okay, I'm going to try. You were first. I'm going to go for it. Watch your heads. Alex Hagel says these are the ninjas of candy. Okay? Yeah, and you got it. Someone last service compared me to Oprah. And a Kit Kat for you, and a Kit Kat for you. I'm like, what kind of simple thing is that, people? Now, if you saw this, that was a core conviction about gravity. I threw it, and you're like, you watch the ark, it's coming at me, or it's like, what is that? You know, it's like, it's, that's a core conviction. You all share this core conviction about gravity. And what it means for you and I to understand what we really believe is about our own behavior is we gotta look at what we do with our lives, what we really believe. Uh, I saw this brochure for a place that had no heat, no lights, no electricity, no phones, no hot water, no indoor plumbing, and it was called Camp Paradise. Apparently, that's their core conviction. I think they're overselling it just a little bit. Okay, um, Anybody ever been to a rock climbing gym like Crux or been rock climbing at all? Okay, all right. So about half of you, again, like the Elmer Gantry, this is going to fall flat for the rest of you, but whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, before you go up on a rope at a rock climbing gym, you've got to sit through a lecture, either on a DVD or uh, someone in person will sit there and tell you all the things you need to know. How you put the harness on, they'll tell you that the ropes could hold tons of weight, uh, that the carabiners are virtually indestructible, and they talk to you all about this. They explain to you, up on the ropes is a perfectly safe place to be, and that you're actually in more danger driving home in your car than you actually are up on the 
ropes when you're climbing in the rock gym, which makes me wonder why anybody ever leaves the rock gym and you drive your car home. But anyway, uh, so everybody has the same lecture. Nobody disputes the facts. Everybody nods their heads. Uh, we all, in a sense, believe what they say. But when you get up on the ropes, you stop believing that. Your stomach is like, oh, I don't believe this. When you don't get a toehold or a handhold, you start to slip and fall. It's like your whole body's like, ah, oh, this was stupid. What did I do? And you freak out because your core convictions haven't really changed. They're still what they are. What do we actually believe? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. I think we'd all like to say we believe that, but our mouths and our hearts don't actually seem like they do. Matthew 20, verse 26, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I think if we all had a test, and it was like true or false, we go, true, this, this is true. But our hands and our feet don't often follow what we say is true. Acts 20, verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, I preach messages about this. Uh, As a matter of fact, in a few weeks, we are all going to go through a stewardship journey together as an entire church. And we say, oh yeah, I believe generosity. Oh, I I believe it's good. But the place where our wallets live and our checkbooks live are probably saying, I don't know if I really believe that. We need to take a step back from that one, buddy. Faith is coming to believe with our whole selves what we say we believe with our words and we say we believe with our minds. Three convictions. What I say I believe, what I think I believe, and what I really believe that's revealed by my actions. The best indicator of our true beliefs and of our true purposes are our actions. Because what we say might be untrue, what we think we believe, it might be fickle, but we never violate our core convictions. We never violate those things. We're at the mercy of how we actually see the world deep down inside. But understanding what our core convictions are and the different ways we look at this to help us also to understand the difference between two people who say they have the same faith and yet their lives look completely different. Two people who say, oh, I believe in the Beatitudes and and the whole four months we went through that and all the Sermon on the Mount, which will finish in December and and the the Apostles' Creed. I believe all that and yet two people completely differently. I mean, I, I think if we say we believe this and yet someone came along behind us and watched us for a year, And they wrote a creed about, by the way we live, what we actually believe, what would it look like? Because this is where faith gets really serious. Because we got to be brutally honest about ourselves and before Jesus. Have we been involved in any self-deception in our lives? Any exaggeration? Any distortion in our lives? And if you say no, well, then you're involved in self-deception right now. So welcome to the club. We're all on the same page. Great. Here we go. Okay? Our true creed, I think, might look something like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe a lie is a bad thing, but it might be necessary for me to avoid some pain. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, but I also believe it pays to be nicest to people who are wealthy, attractive, smart, athletic, successful, and important. I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I also believe I have the right to pass judgment on others. I believe in the communion of saints, but I also believe I have the right to gossip about other people when I feel like it and when I'm angry. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, but when things have not gone really that well in my life, I also think I deserve a little treat, like a drink or another pill or a fantasy or a box of cookies, whatever it is. We all have these convictions that lie deep within us, and the only way to figure out what we really believe is we honestly look at the way that we live our lives, because our behavior calls into question what we really believe about God. Take this belief. Uh, if you're a believer, you would, I would say, is God always present? And you would say, yes, God's always present no matter where I go. That should change how we live just a little bit. I mean, imagine if your mom was always in the room watching you, if your mom was always with you, you would avoid all kinds of behavior. It's why as a teenager, you hid things from your mom. It's like, I don't want her to see that thing. I think when we were teenagers, a whole lot of our sinning might have been cut out if our mom was there all the time because it would have been awkward, right? <laughs> 
Do we really believe God is always present? Are we able to push those beliefs aside when we want to? See, the ideas of faith. When someone claims to believe one way and they act another, we call this bad faith. We call it bad faith. Good faith is when there is a congruence between what we claim to believe and how we actually live. Like sometimes if you intend to buy a house and someone's not really too sure about you, you can give them what's called earnest money. And earnest money sits in an account, and if you back out, they still get the money. It's a way of saying, I'm going to act in good faith that I want to buy this house. And so that's an act of good faith. Good faith means not deceiving others in our public convictions and then not deceiving ourselves in our private convictions. Good faith really means that we love the truth more than we actually love ourselves. So what about Jesus? You look at his life. You know, he's the one that's preaching the Sermon on the Mount and going through all this. Well, the testimony of those who knew Jesus is that there is a congruence about him and how he lived. What he said and what he thought and what he did, they were all in harmony with each other. And based on the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus has said, what do you think he is most interested in changing in us? Public convictions, private convictions, or core convictions? One person. Okay, great. So everybody else, listen to the podcast. It'll be up later today. Go through it again and ask the question. Then answer it because you'll be with me the entire... Thank you. One person, whatever. Okay. You guys are... Yeah! Two people! Thank you. Core convictions. He's most interested in our core convictions, the way things that we say are really, that they really are what they are. I mean, this is a faith at a level where it matters to us. And merely knowing the differences about these different type of convictions, if we can understand the distinctions, doesn't really change us. Because sometimes we cannot even imagine what it would look like to live in a way with the same core convictions that Jesus had. I mean, the disciples, they got to see Jesus live and love every single day. To live. And what did they do? They're complete knuckleheads. You look throughout the scriptures in the book of Acts, and you look through the rest of the New Testament, they're just total tools the entire time. But they have this faith in Christ. And every time they stumble, Jesus is like, I got you. Let's get up. Let's keep walking. Let's keep moving forward. And they saw Jesus live in this reality that God's kingdom and God's presence are breaking through in this world now. Congruence existed in Jesus between what he said and did and what he thought. He believed that there was a heavenly father who was always present with him and loved him. He believed, Jesus believed that the way that you and I believe gravity. That's what his life looked like. Disciples look at Jesus and they they want to live like that. And so what do they do? They stumble and fall a lot, but they want to live like him. So they try to do things like Jesus instructed, and they find that his teachings actually make sense. Forgiveness is better than vengeance. Generosity is better than hoarding. And they began to believe these truths for themselves. You know, it kind of looks like this. First, the disciples had faith in Jesus, and then they began to develop the faith of Jesus. Because they actually listened and followed and did what he said. They begin to think more like him. After Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, his disciples realized Jesus is the Savior of the world. That he really is the revelation of God himself. And therefore, he is to be entrusted with our eternal destinies. Elton Trueblood wrote these words. He said, the deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. The deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. See, faith involves certain belief. It involves an attitude of hope and confidence. But at its core, faith is trusting a person. Faith is trusting Jesus. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Sometimes in churches today, we spend so much time trying to get people to trust Jesus for eternity, trust Jesus to get you into heaven. Well, we never even talk or teach people how to trust Jesus in our daily lives. I'll tell you, as a matter of like psychological reality, that does not work. It produces the people who say they trust Jesus, who may even think they trust Jesus, 
but what they do in their daily lives doesn't really line up with the way things that Jesus says things are. So they're not able to live as Jesus would in their place. I mean, it's hard to live as Jesus would if our core convictions were not the same as his. This is why James writes this, James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And you're not saved by works, by the way. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What he says is, I will show you my faith by what I actually do. Now, you're not saved by these works, but the idea is that our core convictions, because of what we believe, is born out in our actions in our lives. Our lives begin to look different because we actually begin to live in the kingdom of God. Now, there are some Christians uh, who are selfish and greedy and judgmental. Uh, Don't ask me how I know. Maybe because I know you and I know me, okay? You know, others are humble and generous. But we both say we trust Jesus. I think all of us think we may actually trust Jesus. But our convictions about how things really are and how we live out our lives become night and day from each other. It produces two kinds of people, two different kinds of souls, so they both claim the same thing. It's why some Christians are very arrogant and some Christians are very humble because it's the idea that, oh, Jesus saved me. Or is it the idea that Jesus saved me? One is humility, and one is entitlement. And we're to be a people who live in the humility of our God coming to save us. Because we don't deserve it. We deserve anger and wrath and justice. And what we get is grace and mercy. That makes a humble people. I mean, Jesus never said, believe my arguments. What Jesus says is, follow me. And that rock climbing analogy from earlier, you can listen to all those lectures all day long. I mean, you can look at the rope and tie the ropes and clipping your carabiners a thousand times. You might even be able to give the lecture yourself to people. But it will never remove the fear from your body until you get up on those ropes and actually trust them. I think that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Information alone doesn't really bring about the transformation of our whole lives. And you can read book after book, hear talk after talk, listen to sermon after sermon, even read the scriptures from beginning to end. And you can just remain as as anxious and as worry-filled as you ever were before. I think in one sense there's no way to really live in the peace and the grace of God, to get it from our head to our heart to the rest of our body, unless we actually begin to live it out. If we live out the things that he tells us, if we push through our greatest fears and our greatest worries to trust him. I think any time in the long run where we avoid doing what God calls us to do for any reason, whether it's anxiety, fear, or whatever it is, I think we begin to die a little bit inside. And we shy a little more back from God's calling and God's mission for us. I think we truly trust God's Spirit. His peace is when we climb out in those difficult areas, knowing that He's called us to and knowing that He has us no matter what happens in our lives, even when we're scared doing it. Now, I haven't been to the rock climbing gym in years, and I swear if I went, I'd probably be sore for a week and complain about it to you in the email update and everything. It'd be wonderful. Uh, but one of the craziest things is, is once you're strapped into like all these things in the harnesses, you get ready to climb, you look at your partner and you say, on belay. I, I, again, I don't know what the word means. I'm an idiot for doing this. I mean, I don't know. It means something, right? And they say belay on. Now, to belay a rope means you make, it, make sure it's secure. You're fastened to something that's not going to let you fall. It becomes immovable. You're now connected to something that keeps you safe. And you entrust your entire body to that, and you begin to climb. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, what we understand by the end of this is that Jesus is our movable rock. 
It is his story. It is his life. If we see it as he's just a bit player in our life, well, I invited Jesus into my life, and so I keep living my life, and he's invited in. Not understanding that it's God's invitation to us to enter into his kingdom and his life and his grace, and it's his story. I mean, those two different views are going to lead to two radically different lives. We realize it is his life. What do we really believe? What have we surrendered our lives to? Again, because this is not about works. This is about trusting a God who says that we are safe and secure in his hands. We are saved today, which means that our eternity is secure in his hands. And in his hands, that means that we can step out every single day and live the kingdom of God here and now. Because he is trustworthy. And we don't need to worry about our tomorrows. We don't need to worry about all the things that bring us anxiety. Because he is the one who has saved us. And we are secure in his hands. And I will tell you, everybody in this room, all of us, none of us are going to get to the place where we have those core convictions probably that Jesus had. The way he had them. But day by day by day, as we trust, it becomes strengthened in us. And we begin to trust him more and more and more. You know, whatever happens in your life, whatever you go through, we trust Him in the midst of that storm or in the midst of that grace or in the midst of that joy, whatever it is. And our core convictions become changed. They become more like His and they grow deeper and deeper and deeper. This is why we talk about communion every week. You know, communion is that place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because we were lost. We were broken without relationship with our great God. And he came. And he restored relationship. And he is the one who saved us. And he is the one that brought us home. And so we live in the security of that. And that changes the direction of our entire lives because he is the one who has saved us and we live in the grace and the hope of that. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you, like I said, to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, I mean, maybe you're struggling with you know, some anxiety, some doubt, some worry, or you're struggling with what your real core convictions are versus what you say you really want to believe and they're two totally different things. They'd love to pray with you about that. They would love to talk to you about those things. Uh, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, so you have the opportunity. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God is doing in us. And there's some food in the back. Uh, like I said, there's watermelon last service. I don't know what's there now. Probably some cookies, which is always the grace of God showing up when you get cookies. Uh, so you grab something to eat. And again, the reason that we do that is so that we can try and connect you guys better together. Because, yes, Jesus does save us individually, but he never intends for the Christian life to be lived in solidarity. It's not alone. We're not an island. Uh, we, we are meant to be the church, the community, the body coming together, and we help each other to begin to understand what our core convictions are and to live out what we want our core convictions to actually be. Other people in our lives help us to do that, and that's why God intends to connect us together into community. So we invite you to grab something to eat and meet some other people, maybe invite somebody out to lunch, uh, go through the questions. If you're in a gospel community, talk about those this week. If you're not in a gospel community you want to be, sign up for one. We'll have somebody call and invite you. Uh, maybe you have your family here. Go out with your family and, and go through the questions and go deeper. Or your friends. You know, Develop your own little gospel community right there with your friends and go through those questions and talk about going deeper in this. What does it really mean to believe what we say we believe? And how our lives begin to look different when we truly trust God to be the gracious, loving Father that He is. 
A God that loves us so much he's willing to discipline us. A God that loves us so much he's willing to hold us when we've been stupid. And a God that sometimes is very willing to let us fall into the mud and get all dirty. And we're like, what's going on here? And God's like, now, follow me. I'll pull you out of that, clean you off, love you, let's go. Let's go. We follow Jesus. We live the kingdom of God every single day with our lives. We surrender all that we are to him. And that's how we begin not to worry about our tomorrows and have the core conviction that God has us day by day by day. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and help us to understand that our salvation is not even about us. It is for us, but it is not about us. It is about you. In understanding that deep core conviction, I ask that you would change how we begin to live our lives. That we would trust you enough to actually begin to live the kingdom life you call us to now. That we understand that we are not saved by our works, but what we do is an outpouring of what we actually believe. And so I ask that you would teach us to surrender all that we are to you and in your hands. And in that, beginning to trust you in all the places we have so much fear that you would begin to change what we really believe. And the things that we say we believe, we really would believe. Be borne out by how we love others, by how we call people to the truth, by how we're not afraid to speak the truth when we need to, and how we're also not afraid to offer reconciliation to those we need to offer reconciliation to. Father, teach us to live in your kingdom, understanding your blessing first given to us. And that we would live that out as your children in full surrender to you. Amen.